This is not the media. This is hell. And today on This Is Hell, alternative energy is becoming increasingly popular here in the United States, and more and more people are getting their electricity from non-fossil fuel energy sources, except global fossil fuel consumption and extraction keeps increasing every year. Of course, alternative energy is inevitable, as even the market has shown its approval for energy sources that do not cause climate change. For green capitalists with such a rosy picture of the future, we are well on our way to transitioning toward clean alternatives that will not disrupt capitalism in any way, allowing the continued pursuit of constant growth as an economic model, albeit one that right now is leading to climate change. Extraction and burning of fossil fuels needs to be de-incentivized, and that means taking the profit motive out of climate change. To do so, you have to eliminate the profiteering, and that means the end of private ownership of natural resources and the return of those resources to their rightful place, the public commons. We need to end fossil capitalism now, and we'll talk democratization of energy and how that can lead to climate justice in a few when we have the return of post-colonial scholar and writer Ashley Dawson, author of People's Power, Reclaiming the Energy Commons. Ashley is currently professor of post-colonial studies at the Graduate Center, City University of New York, and the College of Staten Island. Ashley's previous books include Extreme Cities, The Peril and Promise of Urban Life in the Age of Climate Change, which we talked to Ashley about back in uh, the last time he was on back in October of 2017. Ashley is also author of Extinction, A Radical History, which we spoke with Ashley about on our show back in April of 2016. This is Ashley's fourth appearance on This Is Hell. Ashley's a member of the Social Text Collective, which you can find out more about at socialtextjournal.org, and the founder of the CUNY Climate Action Lab, and you can find out more about the Climate Action Lab at centerforthehumanities.org. Find out more about Ashley at his own website, ashleydawson.info. And OR Books, Ashley's publisher, has a special offer just for listeners of This Is Hell, exclusively for you. If you purchase Ashley's book, People's Power, through the OR Books website, orbooks.com, not only will you get a discount on that purchase, but you will also get a free ebook of Ashley's earlier work, Extinction. All you have to do is use the discount code this is hell 15 this is hell the number is 15 this is hell in all caps the number is 15 this exclusive offer offer only for listeners of this is hell expires august 1st at midnight again go to orbooks.com use the code this is hell in all caps and then the number 1515 and get ashley's new book at a discount and his earlier work as a free ebook. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, podcast, live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry. This week's question mail is What is the coronavirus cure they don't want you to know about? What is the coronavirus cure they don't want you to know about? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins a This Is Hell face mask. You can check them out right now at our website, thisishell.com. When you click on support, Alex, how are people answering the question from hell so far by leaving their response at our Facebook page, tweeting it to us, or emailing it to us? What is the coronavirus cure they, all caps, don't want you to know about? Sebastian M. says, QAnon says, liberal tears. Eva M. says, population control, exclamation point. Exclamation point's doing a lot of work in that one. Jake B. says, dying. Walter M. says, subscribing to This Is Hell. What is the... Coronavirus cure they don't want you to know about. Fabio L. says smoked pork. Michael S. Or Michael S. says anecdotal evidence suggests rum and coke. I'll let you know if it stops working. Sweet. Adam K. says judging by Cuba and Vietnam, I'd say a su- successful socialist revolution. Mm-hmm. Scott W. says getting a ride on the ISS for the next two years. Uh, T-Zone T. says reducing your carbon footprint. And Aaron B. says we got a pandemic as 5G is rolling out. So I'm going to go with 6G. <laughs> you can leave your answer to this week's question from Al at our, webs- at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can tweet it to us at thisishellradio, or you can email it to chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. But you have to have your answer to us by the end of show tomorrow, Thursday, because we will be announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth. So get your answers in now. 
Live from Hangover Country, this is Hell, and it's time for listener feedback. When we read what you have to say about the show, your comments, suggestions, criticism, both constructive and destructive, that you've emailed to us, DM'd us via Twitter, or messaged us through Facebook. The first is from Stephen, who kindly suggested Monday's guest, Alexander Kolokotranis, who was on our show to discuss his writing at Current Affairs on applying the concept of participatory budgeting to policing. Alexander has discovered that when the people are in control of police spending, there's a lot more money spent on social services and education and a lot less money spent on, say, armored personnel carriers that were used in the invasion and occupation of Iraq. Go figure. On Monday's show, however, I forgot to thank Stephen. And as our listeners have the best guest suggestions, we always want to recognize your contribution to our show that we collectively cobble together every day. So I thanked Stephen on air yesterday, a day late, and he emailed us saying, you almost brought me to tears at work with this kindness, Chuck. I am glad that you had Alexander on. It was a great interview. Labor Day 2021 can't come soon enough so that I can give you and Alex Jerry a big consensual bear hug for putting on such an excellent show and very informative as well. P.S. You don't need to read this one on air. No, I don't need to read this one on air, Stephen. But if I get a chance to pat myself on my back for being kind, I'm going to take full advantage of it and exploit it as much as I possibly can. For whatever reason, kindness is not a word I have heard people associate with me as much as I'd hoped it would be. More so, I get crabby, uh, complainy, uh, doesn't like anything, uh, kind of like a misanthrope light. When I was on Michael Brooks' show, and Michael is being remembered for his kindness, when I was on his show last year following a question that I think was about whether I followed the far right online, I told him something like I'd rather kill myself, and Michael said that would not be on brand for him, and I replied, unfortunately, considering our show, it would be far too on brand for us. So no, Stephen, I did not need to read your email that you sent, but... Sure is nice to have kindness recognized. Fonda sent us a message via Facebook writing, Hello, Chuck. I've been listening to This Is Hell for the last couple of months whenever I can. Just wanted to tell you how great the show is and how great of a host you are. Amazing questions always. I wanted to ask a few questions or give more guest recommendations. I am looking to learn something about indigenous Americans, about the First Nations, etc. Is there a book you know about? Also, the book you featured in an interview with its author, We Are Cuba, from Helen Yaffe, is already in my basket. But do you know any other books? about the start of the Cuban Revolution. I am most looking for objectivity. What do you know or what do you think about uh, History of the Cuban Revolution by Aviva Chomsky? Thank you for your work and your time. Sending all the love from the Czech Republic. Sorry, Fonda, I am not familiar with Aviva's writing. However, as far as writing on Indigenous Americans, start with the incredible 2014 book, An Indigenous People's History of the United States, by a past guest on our show, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. Roxanne was on most recently back in 2018 to talk about her outstanding work, Loaded, A Disarming History of the Second Amendment, which is just a fascinating book, uh, which you should also definitely read. But when it comes to our interview that we did with her on that book, not so much. I think I asked two questions, and the interview was close to 50 minutes. It was informative, but the book is always better than the movie. Beth contacted us via Facebook saying, Hi, I'm not sure if this is the right place to send this inquiry, but I'm interested in buying This Is Hell merchandise. And I live in Rogers Park, which is the neighborhood just to the east of where we are doing the show from right now. Beth continues, "Could uh, Let's see, COVID has made things... Interesting, sigh. So I was wondering if I should just order via the website or if you have any kind of in-person thing happening in the neighborhood. I get around by bicycle slash foot. Oh, I hope she didn't slash her foot. Always wear a mask when venturing further than the porch and even gloves when in-person transactions, merchandise, handling are involved. Oh, just have your dealer drop it off in your car. Just, like, leave your car window open a little bit, and they'll just throw your bag in your car, and that's that way you don't even have to deal with them at all. I assume that's what you're talking about. Also, I have plenty of time on my hands since I'm 
indefinitely furloughed from working in the live concert industry. Sigh again. It doesn't matter to me one way or the other, in-person or online, plus shipping, but thought it might save the hassle of shipping if a local pickup is an option. Of course, I completely understand if you all are squeamish right now about any kind of in-person exchange. Love the show. Thanks. No, thank you, Beth. And we truly appreciate your interest. Yes, for now, it's best. Everything stays online and as contact-free as possible, which sucks. We are very much looking forward to getting consensually hugged by Stephen and to meeting you and all of our new listeners in person, face-to-face, without masks. But for now, let's keep everything virtual. That said, and with hopes that the global pandemic will have subsided by then, and despite me repeatedly saying, as Stephen has noticed, that the current nightmare, the one of the pandemic, not all the other nightmares of climate change, racialized police violence, war, poverty, hate, you know, the normal nightmares, that the pandemic will likely not subside until Labor Day 2021. So we're very proud and thoroughly steeped in denial in announcing something we mentioned in passing to Brian Muir yesterday. And it looks like he may attend the This Is Hell 25th Anniversary Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show. This is Art. R is happening. I don't know. Uh, Saturday, July 31st at Carrie's Lounge. Saturday. Saturday, July 31st, 2021 at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, here in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. Now, if it happens, it will be a rager with live music, food, a raffle, and an art show featuring art either by listeners of This Is Hell or suggested by listeners, as we have done every year for the past four years, that is, until a global pandemic hit. So start making your plans now to be in Chicago a year from now, July 31st, 2021, assuming the novel coronavirus is still not lurking everywhere, to join us for the 25th Anniversary Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show that is tentatively scheduled for Saturday, July 31st at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, here in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. Uh, We also got a couple of reviews, five-star reviews from people. I think to save those for tomorrow's show because they're really great, and I want to make sure I get to them, and I want to make sure that we don't have Ashley hold for too long. So for now, that's listener feedback. You can email us at chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. DM us via Twitter at thisishellradio or message us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can also leave a review of the show at our Facebook page. And if you do, we'll probably read that on the air as well. Coming up on This Is Hell, it's time we take natural resources. What are the public's resources out of private hands? And more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what is the coronavirus cure they don't want you to know about? What is the coronavirus cure they don't want you to know about? I love the emphasis on they. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show, live stream, and podcast host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell sanity and talk radio so clearly and sadly. Noam's gone insane. This is hell. The world keeps breaking records annually when it comes to the burning of fossil fuels. So how do we get the fossil fuel industry to stop? Here to help us figure that out, returning to This Is Hell for his fourth appearance on our show. Climate justice activist, post-colonial scholar, and writer Ashley Dawson is author of People's Power, Reclaiming the Energy Commons. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Ashley. Thanks so much, Chuck. It's great to be with you again. You can find all of our interviews with Ashley at our website, thisishell.com. Ashley was on back in 2016 to talk about his book, Extinction, A Radical History, and most recently in October of 2017 to talk about his other writing, Extreme Cities, The Peril and Promise of Urban Life in the Age of Climate Change. This is how listeners can get a discount on Ashley's book and a free ebook of his earlier work, Extinction, by ordering People's Power through his publisher's website, orbooks.com, and using the code thisishell15 all caps for This Is Hell, This Is Hell 15. The uh, This exclusive offer for listeners of This Is Hell expires August 1st at midnight Eastern time. So do it now. A- Ashley is also a member of the Social Text Collective, which you can find out about at socialtextjournal.org, and the CUNY Climate Action Lab, which you can find out about at the Center for the Humanities.org. Ashley, this week Joe Biden announced his climate change policy, which the New York Times reported today was 
oddly supported by the oil and gas industry. However, later in the same article in today's Times, they point out how that support is due to Biden deciding to continue fracking, not ending fracking, as so many environmentalists and climate justice activists and people within the Bernie Sanders campaign were demanding. How much does any climate change policy fight climate change that does not include the ending and prohibition of fracking? Uh, Chuck, it's great to be back with you and, you know, listening to your recap of all the uh, works that I've talked about on your show, I can't help but thinking it just keeps getting better. And that uh, allusion to Joe Biden suggests that it's uh, definitely true that things are looking up. Um, No, but I mean, seriously, uh, Biden has been pushed a little bit to the left uh, through his engagement with uh, Bernie and his campaign. Um, I think he's trying to thread the needle and looking for some kind of support in swing states like Pennsylvania. But the important thing to be aware of is the fact that fracking is essentially dying as we speak. Um, and that has a lot to do with the coronavirus pandemic. You know, the amount of consumption of fossil fuels has declined radically as people have been locked down. Um, And so fracking, which only really uh, boomed over the last decade because of a lot of money from big banks and the federal government, is now um, in really, really bad shape. Um, And in order to kind of placate Saudi Arabia and Russia, Trump met with uh, the oligarchs and promised not to save the fracking industry. So, you know, while I think climate activists would like to see Biden promise to kill fracking because it's such an incredibly environmentally destructive industry, the good news is, in fact, that um, the industry is is hobbling along towards mass bankruptcy. Um, and I think the, the role of activists is to give it a swift kick as much as possible and to make sure that the government doesn't engage in any bailouts for oil and gas billionaires as part of their bailout packages. Um, so, yeah, that's our task these days, I think. So doesn't that... Is that an example? And I know it isn't. I want you to prove to tell me why I'm wrong. Is that an example of is fracking's inevitable end an example of the market and capitalism working to fight climate change? Yeah, well, I spend a lot of time in my book talking about the ways in which people argue that the market is going to save us and specifically that solar power and wind power, the two really genuine forms of renewable energy, um, are getting increasingly inexpensive and, in fact, out-competing the most dirty fossil fuel, which is uh, coal. And, in fact, a lot of coal-fired power plants around the U.S. have um, been going out of business for precisely that reason. Um, So one might see the crisis of fracking as linked to that, but I think we need to remember that uh, fossil fuels get literally hundreds of billions of dollars in government subsidies every year in the U.S. and around the world. Uh, And the amount of support renewable energy gets is is really tiny. Um, And the growth of renewable energy and its increasing competitiveness has to do with the support that renewable energy actually got from governments, not really in the U.S., but specifically in in Germany and in China, um, where the government supported the build-out of renewable energy. Um, and, and that's why it's increasingly economically competitive, not because of some you know, magic of the market, you know, the hidden hand of the market moving us towards renewable energy and sustainability. That's just not happening. Um, in fact, in a city like New York, we only have about 2% solar energy, although studies have been done saying that we could generate 50% of the energy we use if we put solar panels up on top of all the buildings that could host them. Um, and nationally speaking, we're, we're below 10% in terms of renewable energy um, uh, if we just count wind and, and solar. So we're, we're in really bad shape, and we need this transition to happen a hell of a lot faster. Um, you know, the United Nations uh, panel on climate change has said we only have about a decade left before things get really, really ugly. And uh, so what we really need is a massive public 
intervention. Um, and so my book thinks a lot about what that kind of public intervention might look like, what the precedents are, for example, in the New Deal era, and how we can make sure that this is something that people are actually directing rather than having, you know, kind of oppressive um, uh, government uh, calling all the shots. Well, all I have is about two dozen follow-up questions to that. So, yeah, Ashley, yeah, that was a lot. No, no, that's okay. That's okay. That's great. It was a very good introduction. Uh, so, uh, let's just get back to fracking for one second, because you explain how policymakers adopted subsidies for the financial industry during and after the Great Recession of 2008 that ended up driving a fracking bonanza. This shift constitutes the financialization of fossil capitalism, and this shift has made the increasing economic competitiveness of renewable energy inconsequential. It constitutes nothing more than an, an addition to an energy system already engaged in frenetic overproduction. How did the crash of 2008 lead to not only fracking, but alternative energy losing all of its competitive advantage it was having against fossil fuels? Are we destroying the planet to save the financial industry in the wake of 2008? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, look, it, all of this was well-intentioned, I think, on the part of the Obama administration. People tend to forget that um, Barack Obama campaigned for office on the idea of, uh, wait for it, a Green New Deal, right? I mean, his first policy speech was in Detroit at um, an automobile association. And he said, look, we're going to have to really radically reshape uh, America. And that's going to mean far less cars, far more public transportation, et cetera, et cetera. He didn't follow through on that nearly as radically as he could have. Um, you know, I think he got cold feet, and of course there was a lot of Republican obstructionism. Um, and, and then there was the crash that you alluded to. Um, and so what he tried to do was to put a lot of stimulus in place. Some of it went to renewable energy, but a lot of it was just kind of thrown at the banks, right? You know, listeners who remember the financial crisis will remember um, Obama saying, you know, I'm the only thing that's protecting you big bankers from the people out there with pitchforks. <laughs> and, you know, he did protect them. He gave them billions of dollars and he let um, small homeowners with mortgages, um, you know, uh, end up out on the street. So what the banks did was, you know, they took all this government money and they wanted to find highly lucrative places to put it. And it turns out that one place that gives you a pretty quick bang for the buck is investing in fossil fuels and specifically in fracking. You know, the technology had been developed um, uh, Former Vice President Cheney had been in charge of a kind of shadowy committee that had developed some of the uh, weird and still secret concoction of liquids that um, are injected into the ground to explode rock formations and make uh, oil and gas emerge from those formations. Um, so the technology was there, but it really wasn't economically competitive until the banks said, oh, you know, we can start putting all this money into the fracking industry and uh, uh, the oil will start coming very quickly uh, out of the ground. And in fact, that happened. Um, the U.S. went uh, from being way behind countries like Russia and Saudi Arabia as an oil and gas producer to being the largest producer of fossil fuels on the planet today. And a lot of that has to do with fracking. You know, back in 2008, fracking was only like two or 3% of the fossil fuel sector um, production in the US, and now it's 60%. So when I say that fracking is in massive crisis and companies are going belly up, left, right, and center, it's a really, really big deal for, for the US uh, and, and, you know, for workers in that industry. So we really need to do something to take that industry over, wind it down, and to protect the workers in the industry and also to help all the communities that have been so grievously damaged by um, such an incredibly polluting and destructive industry. But this overproduction of fossil fuels, what it was supposed to lead to was what the right, what even some on the liberalist or centrist liberals were calling energy independence. And that was driven by this idea of not having to depend upon the Middle East for oil, which would mean that the United States wouldn't have to be part of the wars in the Middle East, that we could get out of those conflagrations. So what explains why now that we have energy independence, not only do we have energy independence, we're, we're an exporter of energy. What explains why that outcome of energy independence, the end of foreign resource wars, hasn't ended? 
Well, <laughs> you know, the U.S. has a long tradition of throwing its weight around in the world. A lot of that has to do with um, getting access to fossil fuel resources. I think it's worth remembering that uh, the first coup against a democratically elected government um, in the period after World War II, you know, we all think back to World War II and think about the U.S. as the arsenal of democracy, fighting fascism, and, you know, there's something genuine to that. But it's worth remembering that scarcely 10 years later, in 1953, the U.S. overthrew a democratically elected prime minister in Iran and put a dictator in place, which led, you know, decades later to the Iranian revolution. So the U.S. has a long history of engaging, of course, in imperial endeavors in other parts of the world. And, you know, surprise, surprise, many parts of those world happen to be places that have a lot of fossil fuel resources. Um, so even uh, though the U.S. is now producing so much oil and natural gas, it hasn't really shifted away from those policies of imperial assertion. In, in fact, what the fracking boom has allowed the U.S. to do is to be relatively independent of oil coming from places uh, like Iran um, and uh, Venezuela and to really lean hard on those countries. So, um, you know, you see the U.S. Uh, fomenting um, uh, coups or trying to and putting really, really oppressive kinds of um, embargoes on place in those countries and forcing all of its allies to do the same thing. Um, and I think that's a product of U.S. energy, quote unquote, independence, um, although the Trump administration calls it U.S. energy dominance. So it, it, it makes the kind of imperial um, potential of, of that pretty obvious, as, as Trump tends to do. So what impact would the democratization of energy in the United States, turning it into a people's power, as you argue it should be done, what impact do you think that would have on U.S. foreign policy? What impact would that have on the number of wars that we have raging around the world on our forever war? Uh, well, yeah, I mean... The democratization of resources is uh, a big subject. So uh, let me kind of unpack that pretty quickly, and then I'll come back to your question about the relation between that democratization and the U.S. forever war. So, you know, the U.S. is, is kind of anomalous. Um, in most countries, uh, all the resources, mineral resources under the ground belong to the nation. In the U.S., they belong to private individuals. Um, uh, and even more, there's this weird kind of history that comes out of English common law, a legal structure called right of capture. That means that the first person who is able to access those resources can claim to own them. Um, so it kind of comes out of the idea that oil is a bit like some kind of wild animal. It's running through the woods. The first person who, who kills the animal has a right to have it. And, you know, oil in the 19th century, when all this legal doctrine was being articulated, people thought of it as something that was fugitive and moving in mysterious ways under the ground. Um, and what that all sets off is a, a, a kind of incredibly violent Hobbesian scramble for access to resources, oil resources, um, and in, in the history of the U.S. And um, viewers who have, um, uh, your, your listeners who have seen a film um, like There Will Be Blood, um, will understand what I'm talking about, right? You know, the idea that there's this violent competition. Um, the main character of um, There Will Be Blood very famously takes a straw from one of his competitors and uh, from a milkshake and says, you know, I suck your milkshake uh, as a way of saying, you know, I've taken all the oil out from under the land that you own and you have nothing to, to kind of... Uh, no power over me, right? So there's a weird way in which you uh, power and specifically um, fossil capital in the United States has been incredibly violent. It's been owned by big monopolies that are trying to get it from um, smallholders. Um, and in terms of electricity generation, it's also been highly centralized, right? So, you know, we have power plants that burn coal or increasingly natural gas and, and send the electricity out to us, um, uh, kind of the way, you know, television beams programs to us. We don't have much of a say um, traditionally in, in what um, the main 
TV channels provide us to watch. Well, the same thing is true in terms of electricity and energy. We don't really have much of a say over how much it costs, where it comes from, uh, any of these kinds of things. But what um, renewable energy does is to really change that dynamic because solar power and wind power as well can be generated pretty much anywhere. You know, you can slap a solar panel on your roof um, or you can put up some kind of a wind wind turbine and you can generate power yourself. Um, uh, at the moment, you often have to feed that power back into the grid um, because you know the sun doesn't shine 24 hours a day. But if you have a battery, you can store the power and completely cut yourself off from the grid. So it introduces a potential real radical democratization of how power works. Um, and so you know, that could really reframe the infrastructures of power in our country and I think ultimately could move us away, certainly from the kinds of dependence on fo uh, fossil fuels and, and oil in particular that have led to uh, the most violent forms of imperialism, which we were going through previously in the 20th century. Um, you know, if we could generate our own energy domestically, um, and we, of course, would have to have very strong anti-imperialist movements um, uh, as part of this struggle for energy democracy, but we, we wouldn't be dependent on going um, to other parts of the world and um, crushing people there. And, you know, we also wouldn't be dependent on creating sacrifice zones within our own country, you know, where people have to suffer all of the pollution associated with fossil fuel production. We are speaking with climate justice activist, post-colonial scholar, writer, author, Ashley Dawson, whose new book is People's Power, Reclaiming the Energy Commons. This is how listeners can get a discount on Ashley's book and a free e-book of his earlier work, Extinction, by ordering People's Power through his publisher's website, orbooks.com, and using the code THISISHELL15, that's all caps, This is Hell. then the number 15 the, this exclusive offer for listeners of This Is Hell expires on August 1st at midnight. This is Ashley's fourth appearance on This Is Hell. You can go to thisishell.com and search on his last name, Dawson, and find all of our interviews with Ashley, as well as an interview with somebody else with the last name of Dawson. Find out more about Ashley at ashleydawson.info and follow Ashley on Twitter at ashleydawson.nyc. Earlier you were talking about how little alternative energy is actually being used. And you write that according to recent assessments, so-called modern renewables still only generate 10.3% of global electrical power. But this statistic rather deceptively includes 3.9% hydropower, which is not categorized as a modern renewable since big dam generate significant carbon emissions from the forests they drowned. Modern <laughs> renewables like wind and solar combined only for 6.4% of global electrical power. So are we having far less success in implementing modern renewable energy technology than even the most skeptical person may believe? Um, yes, I think that the answer has to be uh, a definitive yes. What I would say, though, is it depends on where exactly we're, we're looking. You know, um, New York State, for instance, has a pretty high quotient of renewable energy, but a lot of it comes from hydro, you know, from Niagara Falls. Um, and it's not just that big dams because of the fact that they drown vast areas of, of wilderness and that the trees decay and generate methane. You know, it's not just that they're problematic in, in terms of their carbon emissions, but they're also problematic in terms of displacing people. Um, and just to give you an example of that, um, so New York City mayor, I, I live in New York, um, our mayor, Bill de Blasio, has proposed what sounds like a great measure. He wants to fuel all of the municipal buildings in the city, which is, which is a lot of electricity, um, with power that is renewable. Where is that renewable power coming from? Well, it turns out it's coming from Hydro-Quebec, um, and that in order to get that power, they're going to have to build a, a great, huge um, cable up the Hudson River Valley, which will disturb a lot of stuff in, in that um, very precious area. And uh, they're going to be building dams, many of which are in indigenous uh, territories in Quebec, right? So that kind of issue of displacing people, many of them indigenous, uh, with dams is a, a really 
hugely important issue. Um, and it means we have to insist that we need wind and solar power. Um, why is the city of New York not building more wind farms off the coast of Long Island where there's a, a, a lot of wind? Why aren't we doing that faster? Why aren't we actually building those wind turbines in the city. There, there is a procurement by New York State to build about 1,700 megawatts of, of wind farms um, off Long Island, but it's with a, a Danish company. The, the Danes have had a lot of success building renewable um, uh, power and wind power specifically, uh, but it means the wind turbines are going to be built in, in Denmark and shipped across the Atlantic on big you know, fossil fuel burning um, cargo ships. Uh, so why not actually build those wind turbines here in New York City um, and give jobs to people in uh, economically marginalized communities? So you could kind of combine fighting against the, the dirty fossil fuel power plants that put um, people of color and working class people in cities um, in uh, harm's way, lead to very high rates of asthma, heart disease, and all the other bad things that environmental justice um, advocates fight against and also help to uh, renew those, uh, those parts of the city economically. So, you know, that's really what we need to be doing um, in uh, New York City, and the same is true across the U.S. and in many other places. And there are places that have had a lot more success. Um, one chapter in my book talks about Germany and its famous energy transition, um, where essentially the government offered loans to people to be able to... Um, establish cooperatives to build solar and wind power, guaranteed that they'd get a, a good rate when they put that power back into the electric grid. And as a result of that, Germany's up to, um, on a good day, something like 60% renewable power. And obviously Germany doesn't get a huge amount of solar energy. So, you know, the US actually has much bigger resources potentially to, to tap. It's just a failure of political will and the way we keep fetishizing the market and the idea that the free market is going to get us there. And, you know, even, um, you know, kind of climate just, uh, gurus um, like Vice President Al Gore continue to kind of mouth these ideas about how we're going to get there with a free market. Um, but it's just too late in the day for that. And we need a kind of massive uh, Green New Deal or green stimulus program that really pivots on a huge build out of genuine renewable power. Um, and that will bring lots of jobs, it'll bring economic development, and it'll save us all from burning up in a fiery hell. So Germany has already showed us the way to do this. This is how this can be done, how a more democratized energy system can exist. But as we have seen here in the United States, when it comes to universal health care and people suggesting that Canada has a system, so why not just implement that in the United States? There are concerns about scale, about economies of scale, about how large our country is relative to Canada. Can we just take Germany's system and implement it here in the United States? Or are there also issues in using that kind of model because of the size of the United States? Um, no, I, I mean, okay, uh, the United States does have a very large electric grid. It's broken up into three different portions, right? One in the eastern U.S., one in the west, and, and one in Texas. Um, so there definitely are technical obstacles to be overcome. You know, a Green New Deal should build out a kind of national electric infrastructure because, you know, I'm sure people will understand on some obvious level, if it's sunny in one part of the country, you could generate a lot of solar power and shift it to some place where it's uh, cloudy. Or, you know, if there's a part of the country that has very strong winds like West Texas, that could become a kind of uh, huge wind turbine farm and it could generate electricity that could be shipped um, uh, in other places. And there are technical obstacles that need to be overcome to do that. But, you know, Chuck, I think the biggest obstacle is cultural attitudes, you know, cultural obstacles. And, and that is that the U.S. has had this kind of infatuation with fossil fuels. It's fossil fuels are what led the U.S. to gain international hegemony during the 20th century. They are totally impregnated in all aspects of American popular culture. You know, I mean, think about 
the kind of romance with automobiles and with the highway and mobility in U.S. culture. Um, it, it also structures everyday life. Um, you know, the, the suburbs that define American life wouldn't have been possible without all those highways and cars and without the gasoline that, you know, drives all of that. So there's a way in which kind of both culturally and in terms of the material infrastructures of American life, we're, we're really hooked on oil. Um, but obviously, we need to figure out how to uh, wean ourselves off this, and we need to do it in a kind of crash course way. Um, so what's the answer? I don't think it's to tell people that they have to wear, you know, give, give up on the American dream um, or uh, go around um, beating themselves over the head. Uh, and obviously we need to think about workers in fossil, um, industries and, and how to help them. Otherwise we're never going to be able to swing labor onto our side. I mean, it's important to remember that the AFL CIO actually, um, supported Trump, um, and his, uh, American energy dominance platform because of certain sectors like, you know, the, the pipe fitters and the energy workers who uh, are very much behind the Trump policy. So, we really need to articulate a different set of ideals. And, you know, I think that's where ideas about the Green New Deal are attractive, right? Because they really hinge on creating more jobs, but also finding ways to um, have common enjoyment, common pastimes, uh, conviviality and connection, rather than the kind of atomized, fragmented, you know, um, sort of, Adam Smith, I do it my way world that fossil fuels have helped to cultivate. So I would argue that, yeah, we need to kind of shift things technologically um, and in terms of the infrastructure, but we also need to, to change our um, cultural attitudes. And, and that's why I talk about reclaiming the energy commons, right? This has to do with asserting legal prerogatives for collective control over energy, um, which makes sense, as I've already said, given the fact that solar power and wind power are distributed and anybody can generate them. But it also has to do with embracing the ideas of kind of commoning and collective creation, which um, I think are very prominent in um, parts of um, uh, the progressive movement, you know, think about the water protectors at Standing Rock and the importance of these ideas of kind of collectively protecting water resources. Um, so these ideas are very much in the air today. And I think there is a big cultural shift happening. It, it really has to happen in terms of uh, energy as well. How much, though, can that culture war aspect of climate change undermine the potential for that collectivity? Because one of the things I was thinking about... And Ashley, I got to tell you, I wrote 75 questions and this was not any of them. So thank you very much, because this is what I'd rather have as a conversation uh, is that this, you know, a lot of people say that this is uh, climate change is just about science. They just argue it's just science. We'll just convince them with science, almost seemingly like they're ignoring the cultural war part of it. So to what extent can we have a public commons of uh, natural resources when at this point in time, the situation with climate change has been framed within a culture war and not within the terms of science? Well, with so many aspects um, related to the culture war, you know, this is true too, that the culture war is something that uh, the 1% or, you know, the 0.1% the, the used to fool the rest of us and, and put us at odds with one another and fight with one another. You know, um, there's no reason that energy shouldn't be something that we control collectively um, and that uh, helps all of us. Um, rather than benefiting the big oil companies and, uh, you know, the fat tycoons uh, who are CEOs of um, Exxon and similar kinds of corporations. And let me just tell you one kind of anecdote of how this works in other places. So, you know, I'm originally from South Africa. I just interviewed this great activist from Soweto, Trevor Ngwane, um, who is from the Soweto Electric Crisis Committee. And, you know, after the end of apartheid, um, the public electricity provider called ESCOM started cutting people in Soweto off from power because it claimed they were not paying their bills, they were in debt. So what Trevor and his comrades did was to form direct action committees in Soweto that would go around and hook the power back up because the idea was that 
energy, you know, not loads and loads of it, but just enough to survive, you know, enough to heat your house or to be able to cook your evening meal, that that's a human right, you know, and that people in Soweto who've suffered for decades and decades of apartheid oppression should not have to suffer from their electricity being cut off by a post-apartheid government. So I think that example of people's power and of the assertion of the energy commons in South Africa is really useful in the U.S., where in cities like New York, we're also dealing with power cutoffs by private electricity utilities. And that happens during a summer like this one, where, you know, people are struggling to survive economically. We're dealing with a heat wave and not having power could be the difference between life and death, right? You know, you can't run your air conditioner. You can't go to the local library to cool down. So you could, if you're of a certain age or weak uh, or have some condition, you could literally die as a result of the profit motive, which private utilities have at the moment. Um, and it's worth remembering that utilities like the one we have here um, uh, in New York City make millions and millions of dollars for their investors and their CEOs every year. So um, there's no reason that they should be benefiting and everyday people should be struggling. What we need to do is reclaim the energy commons. So do you mean, and I know the answer to this question, so get ready for the softball. Do you mean, <laughs> do you mean by that that it's got to be state-run? Is that there are only two options for profit and state-run top-down systems of public ownership of energy? Yeah, um, what I try to do in the book is to say, um, to, to think about what we mean by public power. Um, and to think about how we can democratize the state. Because I, I am sympathetic to arguments that um, you know, the, the state historically has not actually worked for the benefit of everyone. And even if we can elect a bunch of progressives, we can't expect you know, just to go to the ballot box once every four years or every two years and have everything tur turn out hunky-dory, right? We need to find ways to make the state more answerable to popular democracy. And so in the book, I talk about initiatives in um, places uh, like southern Mexico and um, in Germany in the city of Berlin, where there have been attempts to retake control of electricity generation and to make it renewable um, by people's groups, but then to make sure that people um, have real representation um, and regular kind of consultation uh, in running these newly created state entities. Um, so I think that's really important and kind of, it can be a form of collective control, right? Um, so this is really important because of the ways in which the commons has been theorized historically, right? We have very negative ideas in our head from Garrett Hardin, who talked about the tragedy of the commons. When you, you know, have a space that everyone can use, someone's going to run riot and just take all of the resources. But actually, we know from both historical examples and from um, the way in which commoning works today, that um, we can establish really vibrant ways of working collectively to control a common resource. And so what I do in the book is to explore some of those examples, explore some of the kind of legal precedents, um, some of the historical precedents, um, including the establishment of um, the Rural Electrification Administration during the New Deal in the U.S., which brought power to farmers um, all around the U.S. So there are many examples of how this can be done um, and how control over energy can be really genuinely democratized. How is our relationship with energy different today from what it was in the past? Because you write, if citizens of wealthy nations have grown accustomed to thinking of fossil fuels in a commodified form as the bill paid at a local Exxon station or the monthly charge from a regional power utility, it was not always so. So how was our relationship with energy different in the past, and when did it change? Um, that's a great question. Uh, you know, the electric grid as we currently know it was essentially built out in the first third of the 20th century. And um, the flashpoint that I focus on is the 1920s and the 1930s, because private electric utilities were um, providing electricity for people in cities. They're the same private investor-owned utilities that we still have to this day, by and large, although they're kind of publicly regulated as a result of pressure during 
the New Deal, but it wasn't in the interest of those money-making corporations to extend power to people in rural areas. So during the New Deal, the government essentially provided very low interest loans to cooperatives of farmers in rural areas so they could string up power lines, you know, they could create generators where they had uh, lots of um, uh, power from local rivers, um, created the Tennessee Valley Authority, um, et cetera, et cetera, to, to give people electricity. So, you know, that that's the history that we have behind us. Um, and it includes um, elements of struggle for energy democracy. Um, and, you know, around the world, we see similar examples of people's efforts to take over um, energy for their own good. I already alluded to um, Iran, um, you know, we could also talk about Mexico in the 1930s. It nationalized oil, um, and the U.S., if it hadn't been for World War II, probably would have invaded Mexico to um, stop the dispossession of big American oil corporations. So there are traditions of people asserting control over power. Um, what we need to do now is to make sure that the power that people are fighting for is renewable, right? I mean, there's a real problem with people in global South countries, including South Africa that I already alluded to, but also other places like India, saying, you know, we haven't had electricity um, for all of our citizens up to now, so it's our turn, and we're going to build lots of coal-fired power plants, and that's going to doom the planet. So we need to make sure that people are fighting for renewable energy, and we need to make sure that it's really democratically controlled rather than having private corporations setting it up um, and benefiting from it. You write that it is worth remembering that capitalism ex existed for at least two centuries before fossil fuels were integrated into its mode of production. The racial capitalism of plantation slavery used solar and wind power as well as human energy to grow sugarcane and to transport slaves and sugar across the Atlantic. Capitalist exploitation, imperialism, and genocide have existed under renewable energy regimes in the past and may exist in the future unless energy is conceived of as a social commons to be collectively governed for the good of all, unless the transition to renewable energy in terms of a broader power shift toward egalitarian, non-capitalist social relations is conceptualized. Is control over energy then a kind of authoritarianism when it comes to controlling the people and the economy? Um, in many in many moments, it has been historically. Um, you know, some of the examples I just gave, um, uh, such as Iran and, and Mexico, you know, governments nationalized oil in the name of helping the people, but then very quickly, what developed is the so-called resource curse, where, you know, a small oligarchy were able to control the energy and um, to use the power they uh, accumulated that way, in, in both senses of the term power, to oppress the vast majority of the people. What I would argue is that there's something distinct about renewable energy, which, as I've said, is distributed so that anyone can access it um, potentially. Uh, and, and so there's the possibility for a genuine democratization uh, in terms of energy infrastructures inherent in renewable energy that's very different from, from oil. Um, and it's worth remembering that oil... Um, and the, the, the growth of oil was, to a really significant extent, um, a reaction on the part of elites against the power of miners um, who had very strong unions in the U.S. and in Europe. Um, and it's very difficult to get coal out of the ground, so it makes miners' unions very strong. And they could in, engage in general strikes and shut down access to, to coal uh, and cripple the economy. Um, uh, and that helps to explain, I think, a lot of the revolutionary ferment in the early 20th century and the kind of success of social democracy, um, such as it is in, in Europe um, and other parts of the world. So there is something about the technical aspect of, of the um, energy forms in particular that's really important. And with renewable energy, we have the possibility to really reclaim the energy commons and assert forms of energy democracy. But it's going to take really vibrant social movements and social struggles. Um, I mean, just to give you one example of how we can't just kind of think, oh, we're going to have energy transition. All we need to do is fight for solar panels and everything is going to be completely fine. Um, where is the lithium? Um, where are all the minerals that go into batteries to store solar power and wind power? Where is that all going to come from? Right now, a lot of it comes from Bolivia and other global South countries. And they're trying to nationalize 
those resources as quickly as they can, because they know that they're again going to be on the sharp end of imperial extraction if they don't find ways to defend themselves. So, you know, I don't think we should assume automatically that energy transition to renewable energy is going to get rid of all the dynamics of empire and capitalist exploitation and racial capitalism that we've been talking about together today, Chuck. You know, we, we really need um, control of energy plus social movements. That's what gives us energy democracy and a really genuine energy commoning. And that whole situation with lithium and Bolivia and the coup that the United States was participating in that overthrew the government of Evo Morales was bragged uh-huh. about by Elon Musk on Twitter over the weekend, which was great. He said, we'll just have a coup wherever we want to have a coup when somebody was complaining about his company and the Bolivian revolu- or Bolivian coup of, over lithium. So uh, in that situation, how can we both embrace new energy technologies and avoid more resource extraction like lithium uh, extraction that can be devastating for the environment and might contribute to climate change? Well, um, you know, I I think we have to fight against imperialism. It's worth remembering that Elon Musk, uh, like me, comes from South Africa, you know, (laughs) benefits from a long history of apartheid exploitation of uh, people. And, you know, he clearly intends to keep that tradition going. Um, So we need to be clear about what the stakes are of the fights. Um, We need to um, figure out ways to work collaboratively and in solidarity across national borders, you know. So, if we have governments in a place like Bolivia trying to nationalize lithium, um, you know, of course we can hope that there'll be some technological fix and we won't need lithium anymore. But you know, while we wait for that, you know, what would be fair terms of exchange for lithium? You know, we need we need a completely different international trade regime than the current one, which drives prices um, for countries where resources are being extracted down and down and down. Um, so that is, you know really, really key to fighting in the present moment. And then to go back to something I said previously, we also need to kind of reclaim ideas of common life and conviviality, um, and particularly, um, you know, ways in which we can diminish our energy consumption through public transportation, through um, uh, housing, which doesn't generate a lot of carbon emissions, et cetera, et cetera. And again, I want to emphasize that this isn't about, you know, um, embracing, um, uh, you know, furry, um, panted, uh, you know, hair shirts and uh, kind of ecological suffering. Uh, it's about finding ways to be together and to create a new round of, of jobs for people who need them through the reconstruction of our societies in a way that is sustainable um, and pleasurable for all of us, right? Because if access to fossil capitalism, you know, think about the average car ad where we, you know, see a guy sitting behind the wheel driving fast through some uh, natural environment. It's all about images of mobility, independence, um, sexual gratification, et cetera, et cetera. You know, if those ideas are all in our head, uh, what it's actually done to us is to create an incredibly alienated and atomized and violent society. Um, and I really think we can do better. And we have the social movements right now, which are which are fighting for that better world. One last question for you, Ashley. We have been speaking with climate justice activist, post-colonial scholar and writer Ashley Dawson, author of People's Power, Reclaiming the Energy Commons. Find out more about Ashley at his website, ashleydawson.info. Follow Ashley on Twitter at AshleyDawsonNYC. This is how listeners can get a discount on Ashley's book and a free ebook of his earlier work, Extinction, by ordering People's Power through his publisher's website, orbooks.com, and using the code ThisIsHell15. That's This Is Hell, all in caps, the number 15. This exclusive offer for listeners of This Is Hell expires August 1st at midnight Eastern time. So do that now. This is Ashley's fourth appearance on This Is Hell. You can find all of our conversations with Ashley, both about this uh, book, People's Power, as well as Extinction, and his other earlier work, which was Extreme Cities, all at our website, thisishell.com. One last question for you, and as always, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask you, hate to answer or our audience is going to hate your response i'm going to hate myself because i might use the term new normal during this and i hate that phrase 
so freaking bad. Everybody's talking about how, what's the new normal going to be like after the pandemic? What's the new normal going to be like? You write today a new round of populist demagogues who are taking the conservative counter-revolution in an increasingly authoritarian direction has harnessed popular anger of the dysfunctions of neoliberalism. From Trumpism in the United States to Bolsonaro in Brazil and beyond xenophobic nationalist forces are exploiting economic stagnation, rising inequality, and the increasing apparent impacts of climate chaos. Movements like Occupy in the Arab Spring that called for economic and political democratization earlier in the decade have given way to strong men like Trump, Bolsonaro, and the Philippines' Rodrigo Duterte, with who uh, scapegoat immigrants and the poor for their country's economic struggles while further privatizing the public space, cracking down on dissent, and expanding planet-destroying extractive industries. If popular discontent with neoliberal globalization is not to be even more thoroughly captured by the forces of reaction, we urgently need to articulate viable models of public ownership based on principles of economic egalitarianism, decentered decision-making, and public participation that reanimate the idea of democracy and the common good. So is the struggle now, in your opinion... You know, people are talking about what's the new normal going to be after the pandemic. Is the struggle now what's the new normal going going to look like after neoliberalism? Because everyone is talking about getting back to normal after the pandemic. Will that new normal be one where we are struggling over what happens after neoliberalism? Well, to um, ring a change on Rosa Luxemburg's famous phrase, we really face a struggle for the energy commons or, or barbarism. You know, that is... Um, elites want to impose another round of austerity. I don't know what it's like in Chicago and Illinois, but you know our governor uh, Cuomo, who got a lot of attention for his wonderful press briefings, he's cutting state budgets left, right, and center, including public transportation, you know, including public universities, um, and people are going to rise up against that. You know, that's those kind of cutbacks are what led to the rise of Trump. You know, when people's lives are diminished, they are going to rebel and abandon the political center uh, in order to make sure that that abandonment doesn't go to the right, doesn't lead to a kind of eco-fascism um, that targets immigrants and blames people of color for um, our uh, economic and political woes. We really need to emphasize the possibility of rebuilding the world collectively. And I think the idea of the energy commons is a gesture in that direction. Ashley, it is always a pleasure having you on the show. Actually, when I was looking through the archives and I saw that it had been two and a half years since we had you on, I want to apologize. We need to have you on more often. So thank you so much for being back on our show. And don't forget, everybody, you can get Ashley's book. This is how listeners can get a discount on Ashley's new book, People's Power, and a free ebook of his earlier work, Extinction, by ordering People's Power through his publisher's website, orbooks.com, and using the code thisishell15. This exclusive offer for This Is Hell listeners expires August 1st at midnight, so do it now. Again, thank you so much for being on our show again, Ashley. Great being with you, Chuck. Thanks so much. Take care. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, This Is Hell. I love saying that tagline right after a guest hangs up because I don't think they hear it. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live stream podcast host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. This week's question from Mel is, what is the coronavirus cure they don't want you to know about? The person with our favorite answer wins a This Is Hell face mask, which you can see right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But just have it to us before the end of the show tomorrow when we will be announcing this week's winner as we do each week following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth. Do you have any more answers from listeners on this week's question from Yeah, I got to make a quick study at home yeah. and uh, take care of my kid. Uh, what is the coronavirus cure they don't want you to know about? Sarah M. says voting early and often. <laughs> Leslie P. says person, woman, man, camera, TV. <laughs> Rosario R. says, Medicare for all. Justin M. says, Socialism. Josh H. says, Empathy. They're all androids, Rick. Who's Rick? I don't know. Maybe that's next week's question from Hell is who's Rick. Uh, <laughs> what is the coronavirus cure they don't want you to know about? Dribble Y. says, Having it disappeared in an unmarked van by federal agents. Eric K. says, Had a call. You know what had a call? Uh, I was looking up those like a synthesized alcohol substitute people drank in the 30s. That may be coming back. Who knows? Andre J says, wearing a simple mask on your face and only going out for essentials. 
Mika D says government. Chad F says unpatentable Incan tree bark remedy known in modern form as hydroxychloroquine. <laughs> Krimsky K says wicker. And finally, uh, <laughs> Greg M says we'll never know because it was Bolsonaro had it destroyed by burning it down the Amazon forest. Either that or the cure is two girls and a cup. Krimsky- two girls and a cup <laughs> might be the uh, off-brand version of two girls one cup. I'm not entirely sure about that. Krimsky's answer of wicker uh, tickles me because the first person who was a large dealer of LSD that I knew, his cover was always that he was, a, and he was, he was a wicker salesman. So he'd call up my house and he'd say, dude, I just got a whole bunch of new wicker in if you're interested. <laughs> so every time I hear the wick, the word wicker, when I moved to Chicago to wicker, I was like, I got to move to Wicker Park. I got to know what's going you on. You think a most my... legit wicker salesman are calling people cold and saying dude to start the sales pitch? <laughs> I don't know, but it was always really funny. And he was from uh, Scotland and he had a really heavy Scottish accent. <laughs> Uh, tune into tomorrow's show, streaming live 10 a.m. Chicago time at thisishell.com or listen to the podcast posted shortly after our live stream. And at the end of tomorrow's show, we will be announcing who won this week's question mail. Alex, who's on tomorrow's show? Uh, tomorrow we're talking with Tamara Fernando about her hypocrite reader magazine article, Death at the Pearl Fishery. I'm really looking forward to that. And yeah, I love it's going to be t- out there. I'm real excited. I love the title of that publication, too. Uh, and uh, yeah, we'll have some other stuff. Thanks to Ashley Dawson for being today's guest. Thanks to Alex Jerry for producing today's show. With my most sincere apologies, yes, I am a white dude, but keep in mind I'm also a race and gender traitor. This is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.